This morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verse 11 through to 20, and the title of my sermon is Onwards and Upwards. Last week we saw that before the Apostle Paul's Damascus Road conversion, he was a self-righteous Pharisee named Saul, who had persecuted the church unto death. In so doing, he very clearly demonstrated that far from doing God a service as a religious Jew, he was in fact an enemy of God and his unrighteous zeal was ultimately directed against the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is borne out by what Jesus said to Saul when he met him and he saved him on the road to Damascus. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul, in his self-righteous and unregenerate zeal, very clearly demonstrated man's rebellion against his maker, almighty God, and Saul's salvation demonstrated that where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds even more. Understand very clearly that if you have not yet received Jesus as your saviour from sin, then you are every bit an enemy of God, as Paul once was. You must therefore repent and call on the name of Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You can be certain that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How the Apostle Paul used to be before his Damascus Road conversion is contrasted in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 with how he was after his conversion as a new creature in Christ. Let's just have a look again at verse 11 of Philippians chapter 3. It's written, or Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. I hope that verse is beginning to be written indelibly in your thoughts and in your heart. I've said that verse enough time over the years. As you can see, by the grace of God, Paul, who already knew Jesus as his saviour from sin, desired to know him even more, and his prayer was not for earthly riches, nor for health, nor power, but rather it was that he might live his born-again life in the power of his risen Saviour, and that he might participate in the sufferings of Jesus, and that he might be made conformable unto the death of Jesus. In other words, with God's enabling grace, that he might put to death the deeds of of his sinful nature. You may have noticed last week, or perhaps you may have noticed now, that verse 10 is not complete. The full stop comes at the end of the next verse, verse 11, after the apostle said, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Let's have a look at verse 11. 
In that verse, Paul was looking ahead to the end of the world, to when Jesus shall come again in judgment. When that time comes, all who are in the graves shall hear his voice, and they shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Paul started verse 11 by saying, if by any means. As you read those words, don't entertain the idea that he was expressing perhaps a little bit of uncertainty about there being a positive outcome for himself at the resurrection of the dead when Jesus comes again. Far from it. For example, don't forget that in chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul had already said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Those words tell us that Paul had every confidence that at death he would go to be with Jesus, which, as far as Paul was concerned, is far better. Therefore, you can be certain that Paul did not say those words, if by any means, at the beginning of verse 11, as someone who entertained the idea that he might nevertheless be cast body and soul into hell on the day of judgment. So, what did Paul mean? As one of the commentaries explains, and I believe rightly so, by saying, if by any means, he was expressing a humble expectation that his body would be raised up from death to life. <clears throat> also, Paul spoke very positively in various other verses of scripture about a final deliverance when the bodies of Christians will be glorified and he included himself. Just look down at verse 21 where Paul said, he was speaking about Jesus here and he said, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We'll be looking at verse 21 in more detail at another date, God willing. But suffice to say for now that Paul had every confidence that his body would be raised up and glorified. However, that time had not yet come and it still hasn't come. That brings us to verses 12 through to 16, where the apostle said, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, 
be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Looking at verse 12, Paul said, Not as though I had already attained. In other words, not that he had already attained the resurrection of the dead, spoken of in verse 11. Either were he already perfect. Unlike Paul, there are professing Christians, and I've met one or two of them in my time, who carry on as if God has already raised them up, body and soul, to sinless perfection. I've listened to them, and I've thought, who are you kidding? And for me to think that is not me being judgmental, rather it is me being biblical. Christians who imagine themselves to be without sin ought to know better, instead of being like unregenerate people of the world who imagine themselves to be good. Paul was one of those people when he was a self-righteous Pharisee, but he certainly was not one as a born-again Christian. In fact, in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, written 25 years or more after he became a Christian, he acknowledged that in him, that is, in his flesh, dwelt no good thing, and he called himself a wretched man. However, it didn't end on that negative note, because Paul went on to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Clearly, he was under no illusions. I think that he would have endorsed what the hymn writer wrote. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Like the hymn writer, the great apostle pleaded nothing other than the righteousness of Christ for his acceptance by God. Far from being already perfect, I'd go as far as to say that if a professing Christian does not feel the need to regularly repent and confess his sins to his Heavenly Father, he really needs to examine himself whether he be in the faith. Unlike unregenerate people, truly born-again Christians are people for whom repentance towards God is continuous, as is their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ continuous. Instead of ambling along with a halo above his head and imagining himself to have, to have reached the zenith of spiritual perfection, Paul was a man who said in verses 13 and 14, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God 
in Christ Jesus. As such, Paul was describing the Christian walk in terms of pressing towards the mark. Like an athlete leaning and stretching forwards as he keeps his eyes on the finish line and on the prize. By the way, you needn't think of that as a, a, fast pa- a first past the post running race. That's not what it is. The track is Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In other words, when we become Christians, it's by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we enter into heaven, our eternal rest, it is by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and everything else in between is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For some Christians, it can be a long and painful and arduous journey. And for others, it may be very short and relatively sweet. Although we are not all moving at the same speed, and we are not all experiencing the same difficulties, we all need to be moving onwards and upwards. Therefore, there should be no looking back and dwelling upon the many sins of commission that you have had in your thoughts, your words and your deeds thus far. And not forgetting all those sins of omission, such as the countless times when you didn't have the guts to talk to people about the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Neither is there any merit in looking back to see how others are getting on with a view to comparing yourself favourably or unfavourably with them. Being on the track whose name is Jesus is about endurance. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. The Lord said those words in the context of Christians enduring persecution for his sake. And as we've already seen when we were looking at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, faith and suffering for Christ's sake are inseparable and they are twin blessings from God. Also, pressing toward the mark means drawing on all the resources that God has so graciously given you, such as a resurrection life and the Holy Spirit working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure, to the end that you continually strive for a greater knowledge of your Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and you strive for greater levels of holiness and righteousness in the life that you now live by the faith of the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you. Looking at verse 15, we can see that Paul addressed as many as be perfect. In other words, 
He was talking to mature Christians and not to babes in Christ. He urged them to be thus minded or to have this mind. Within the context of the chapter, to be thus minded means having no confidence in the flesh and it means forsaking all in order to win Christ. Thus far, the Judaizers had not managed to impose works of the law on the Philippian Christians, but that didn't mean to say that it might never happen. Hence, the exhortation from Paul to the mature Christians to keep focused on Jesus and on his righteousness. It was especially important for them to do so when you think that they would have been teachers and mentors to the new converts and babes in Christ. What all this means is that none of you can assume that you would never go astray and that you would never slip into the error of adding your own works to the finished work of Christ. Even if you've been a Christian for donkey's years, you need to continually keep your focus on your great prize, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you count everything else as dung. Last of all today, we can look at verses 17 through to 19, where Paul said, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample or a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. In verse 17, Paul urged the Philippian Christians to follow the example of himself. But not just himself. He said, ye have us for an ensample or a pattern. Presumably, us included the likes of Timothy and Luke and various other godly men. Far from exalting himself, Paul was giving sound advice. After all, having been graciously delivered by God from seeking to establish his own righteousness before God, he now lived and breathed his great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For example, to the Corinthian church, Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nearly 2,000 years later, and with our completed Bibles, we ought to be very thankful to God that we have many books in the New Testament that were written by Paul, and as he was led by God, the Holy Spirit. And we do well to imitate him and have him as a pattern for godly living. In verses 18 and 19, Paul spoke about people who are enemies of the cross, of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and who mind earthly things. Those people sound very worldly and carnal, and for that reason, 
many commentators seem to imagine that Paul had suddenly moved on from warning the Philippian Christians about the Judaizers with their insistence on keeping the law of Moses as well as trusting in Jesus. And the commentators say that in verse 17, Paul began to talk about another type of errorist, the antinomians. Antinomians are professing Christians who use the grace of God as an excuse to disregard the law and they do what they want, when they want, instead of prayerfully seeking to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. It's fair to say that there are plenty of those people, antinomians, in the visible church today. However, I don't think that Paul suddenly started talking about antinomians. He was still talking about the legalistic Judaizers who, like the antinomians, have no genuine faith in Jesus. As such, what we read about the Judaizers in verses 18 and 19 is a very apt description of them. They are enemies of the cross and their end is destruction. Again, this ought to be a very solemn and sobering warning to all of you who see a need to add anything of your own to the grace of God and to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll finish with verse 20, where it is written, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippi, though it was in Greece, was considered to be a Roman colony. As such, the Philippians had Roman citizenship. However, when the Apostle Paul, who also had Roman citizenship, said, for our conversation is in heaven, he was talking about an infinitely superior citizenship, a heavenly one. Dear Christian, you have dual citizenship. You have British citizenship or whatever, but most of all, you have citizenship of heaven. Remember that as you continue along life's narrow way. What it means is that you are in the world, but you are not of the world. As the song says, this world is not your home. You are just a passing through. Your treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Like Abraham of old, your confession is that you are a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth, and you are looking onwards and upwards to the city that has firm foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Until such time you cross the finish line, make it your priority to live soberly, godly, and righteously with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, and with your eyes fixed upon the great prize which is the Lord Jesus Christ, as you strive to know him more each day, and as you press 
towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Finally, when I read verse 20, it makes me think of Spurgeon. I suspect that Spurgeon might have had something profitable to say about that verse. Something that would be beneficial for us to take away and think about it. And I'm not wrong. This is what the Prince of Preachers said. Can you say that, can you say that, dear friend, is your citizenship in heaven? Is your conversation there? Do you often commune with your Lord upon the throne? Judge yourselves whether it be so or not. It is a very poor thing to have a name to be in heaven and yet never to have any heavenly conversation. I wish that we could all say that we talk more to God than we do to men and have more business upward than we have here below. He is coming. He is coming. Are we looking for him? This is the true position of the Christian looking for the appearing of his Lord. Amen.